Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Greetings, this is New Books in Science Fiction. I'm Rob Wolf, and this is the Nothing Cures Like Time and Love edition. You're getting your money's worth today, although since this podcast is free, I'm not exactly sure what that means, but I like how that sounds because on this episode, you're going to hear from not one, but two wonderful writers who have come together to create a highly anticipated and unusual novella. This is How You Lose the Time War, which went on sale mid-July. My guests are writer, editor, and critic Amal El-Motar, who has won the Hugo Nebula and Locus Awards and been a finalist for the World Fantasy Sturgeon, Aurora, and U.G. Foster Awards, and Max Gladstone, author of the Hugo-nominated Craft Sequence and The Empress of Forever, which just came out last month, and this is also Max's second time on the show, Amal, Max, well, Max, it's wonderful to have you back. And Amal, it's wonderful to have you on New Books in Science Fiction for your first time. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be here. Thanks, Rob. Uh, Real pleasure to be back. Max, you're in Somerville, and Amal, you're in Ottawa, and I'm in New York City. So we're kind of all over the globe. I was thinking that was just like the characters in your book, Red and Blue, (laughs) except that they're all over this and other universes and all over the timeline as well. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's somewhere where it's not 108% humidity. Oh, nice. God. That would be so nice. <laughs> yes, like my little makeshift studio here where I had to turn the air conditioning off so it doesn't interfere with the sound. So, <laughs> Oh, no. Bless you and your sacrifices for science fiction journalism. <laughs> Thank you for appreciating that. So which came first? Did you have the idea for this book and say gosh, we have to write this together, or did you, or maybe your agent or your publisher, want you to write a book together, and then you came up with the idea for the book? Very much the second one. We both uh, had been friends for a little while, had been corresponding uh, via snail mail, pen and ink, letters, seals, and um, as our friendship was deepening, we were sort of overcome by the desire to write something together and to, uh, I don't know, just try to meet on the fictional battlefield, as it were. And that came first, and everything followed after. Yeah. Um, In fact, the the other thing, too, was that uh, I think at that point in time, Max, you still were with a different agent. uh, And it was only after we had... Uh, just about finished the project that I ended up signing with Dong Wan Song. Uh, and shortly after that, I think like a few months after that, you did the same. So it was very fortuitous that that, that came together um, as it did in the end. But it definitely came out of our desire to work together and then finding an idea that would enable us to both uh, bring our respective strengths to the table in order to do that. You were already corresponding by handwritten letter. I'm kind of amazed by that, but that's a very important part 
of the book, although all the letters in the book are not, in fact, handwritten, but <laughs> letters are uh, key to the structure of the story. Yeah, um, so the letters are not all handwritten. Uh, they uh, definitely make use of the fact that the two main characters have all of time and space at their disposal to uh, <laughs> to do very elaborate sorts of, of letter writing things. Um, that said, though, I mean, that was very much part of, of Max and my own process of writing by hand. Our, our letters became sort of more and more um, beautiful objects, <laughs> I think, as time went on. Like, I definitely started when I was writing to Max to just like whatever came to hand, like whatever printer paper or, you know, ballpoint pen or whatever I happened to have whenever I wanted to write a letter was what I used. But um, then Max started uh, like his letters were appearing on this gorgeous, creamy, like <laughs> Verge de France, Gilalo paper. Uh, and I was like, oh, man, I, I want my letters to be beautiful, too. And uh uh, Max was into fountain pens before I was, and he got me into that, and I was into sealing wax before he was, and I got him into that. And then now our letters are like, they, they have a format. They have like, we're, we're using the same brand, <laughs> and we're using fountain pens more or less, and uh, we're we're also using wax seals with like two, like we, we each have our own stamp that we use for corresponding with each other and uh um and i really like that i like that like it just kind of our correspondence evolved to look a certain way um so even though we're not writing letters to each other in thousand year old trees uh as they're growing and stuff or in tea leaves or whatever else comes up in the book um i do feel like there was a kind of deepening of the attention to the the physical object that was carrying so much emotion and uh and friendship forward and backwards between us yes exactly i think the way while the letters that red and blue are sending one another in this is how you lose the time war which is largely an epistolary story it's a story about a correspondence featuring the characters scenes in which the characters are receiving letters and then the letters themselves that they're receiving so anyway the letters that red and blue are sending one another are elaborate sometimes taunts sometimes gifts sometimes pranks almost um, that take an enormous amount of creativity and forethought to carry out because of course red and blue are agents of opposing sides of a war that's being fought by opposing and mutually exclusive timelines um, that are both trying to ensure the other's destruction and their continued survival so Red and blue, initially taunting one another as rival agents may tend to do from time to time, are engaging in this very dangerous game of correspondence at the mm -hmm. opening of the novel. And the way that the sort of elaborate structures that they come up with to communicate with one another, letters written in a lava or in the rings of a tree or in uh, pomegranate seeds or sumac seeds, they capture something about physical correspondence which is the distillation of time mm -hmm. uh, a, any kind of i mean all we have in the end is time that's all any of us really has and that's all we can give to one another uh, time or sort of tokens that represent time and in a world where we're increasingly scattered and shattered into a bunch of different pieces of attention and uh, threads of thought, the 
power of sitting down and focusing yourself on one particular task, whether it's a conversation with a person or a letter being written to one friend, never shared with the vicissitudes of the internet or with you know, a computer that's going to parse your words and then use them to try to sell you obnoxious services. Um, it, it, there's, a, there's a purity of gift to that. And there's also a sort of aspect of hospitality where your text is a prepared space for the other person to enter. Maybe it's a prepared sort of horror house for the other person to enter as <laughs> happens a bit earlier in the novel where you're, you know, you're, you're, you're cre- but still you're creating a place for them. Well, that's beautifully said. I did want to talk about how they create these amazing letters. I was going to I was going to save that for a little later, but since we're on it, the idea of writing a letter in the rings of a tree, I mean, if that speaks to incredible patience, mm-hmm. maybe you ha- hadn't thought as far as actually how that might be carried out. It's almost poetic and symbolic rather than in any way, shape, or form practical. But had you thought about how that might be practically carried out? I mean, I presumably... Each year, a, a ring is produced, and so you're able to manipulate, maybe, over the course of a year, get a letter, a word out of the ring? or Oh, the way I'd actually imagined Blue doing it uh, was um, a sort of very extreme uh, botanical engineering, so that as the tree is growing, she's making sure that it's getting this kind of nutrient at this kind that is at this time that is going to produce these striations in the rings and stuff like that. So like she she has uh, there like there were I think red. Um, interprets her as having done this differently. There's a little bit of difference between the way. So blue in that letter, if I'm remembering correctly, says something like, oh, "It's hilarious that you were trying to to make me like." you know, have an unguarded response when it's literally taken me a thousand years to grow these. She, like, it, it's funny considering how long it's taken me to grow these words. Um, <clears throat> so I had a sense that it was a kind of manipulation of, 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 of controlling that tree's environment very, very, very precisely to like a ludicrous degree uh, over time. Um, whereas I think the way that Red envisions it is like that she would have appeared at at like once a year in a kind of ritualized fashion and that someone might have come to associate that tree with like a strange fairy visitor or something who comes and does something to it every now and then when and i think about it those, those are not actually incompatible visions um like if, if i think I, red's vision yeah. is sort of uh, accurate it's funny we'd never talked about yeah uh, exactly <laughs> how we saw that taking place but I, I was envisioning a sort of careful control of nutrients which is yeah. one of and, and other environmental factors that affect the thickness of the yeah. rings of a tree no, that's and exactly what i was thinking yeah 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 so there we go hooray <laughs> it's imagining red's imagining blue sort of kneeling at the tree and like injecting more nutrients over here yes. and taking some you know away over here Excellent. Okay. Yeah, I think the way that I was reading the way that Red was approaching it, which is this is so delightful to me. That I, like, <laughs> we wrote this book together and I'm like, yes, this is how I interpreted the thing that you wrote and the thing that we wrote together um, was that, uh, that that she was um, in, like inscribing the words with a tool. Oh, no, or no, no. Yeah. But no, I'm glad to know we were on the same page uh, uh-huh. as it were with this uh-huh. the whole time. So, yeah. 
Okay, so now I have to ask, as you two are discovering things about the book right now, live as we speak, I have to ask first, folks. Exactly, I have to ask about how you collaborated because I've heard you say that you wrote this, at least a portion of it, in a gazebo, which is just such a great word. I love to, I love to just say it when I can say. In fact, and my son, when he was little, we used to, we used to have a joke that revolved around the word gazebo. We we would say to each other, "What is a gazebo?" And the answer was gazebo, and we would just both laugh we always just cracked <laughs> up that's so that's cute. wonderful oh my god gazebos are great gazebos have deep uh, deep nerd culture history there's of course the the gazebo that's resistant to magic missile and dungeons and dragons lore <laughs> well of course that kept you safe then if there was a red or a blue they couldn't penetrate your yeah your... exactly so so describe how you actually work because now i'm imagining you each took on a character, so you each were writing one of the characters, blue or red, who are these special agents representing opposing forces, manipulating timelines, and leaving each other letters. But it sounds like, I, I wondered if you collaborated on the letters. You said, well, you should put this in this, and I'll put that in that. But it sounds like you didn't, in fact. You you wrote a letter, and then did you hand it off? And the other one had to then respond, and that's how you wrote the book. You kind of just surprised each other with the content of the letters. So it was a little bit half and half. Basically, we would uh, we would discuss the situation in which the letter was received, uh, but we wouldn't discuss the letter itself. So we were trying to kind of get the logistical sense of right in order to write the situation in which the letter is received. You know, you need to have some sense of how is it manifesting? You know, is it manifesting in a tree? Is it manifesting in a cup of tea? And that sort of thing. So that then you could refer to that in the letter itself, refer to the physicality of the object itself, which also is actually something that like Max and I would do in our actual letters to each other, you know, would comment on like, I'm using this ink with this paper, or I'm sitting at a desk, uh, or I'm looking out the window, you know, kind of giving some aspect of, of our own physical space to, to send out into the uncertain future where this letter will be read. So in this case, when we were writing it, we were always writing something at the same time. So one of us would be writing the letter and one would be writing the situation in which the letter is received. Uh, but the, at first there was this kind of disconnect because Max writes a lot faster than I do um, in general. <laughs> and so like Max, like again, like, I, I, keep, I keep marveling at the, the arithmetic of it, but he writes just about four times as fast as I do. So it was uh, it was tricky at first to like Max would end up waiting for me like he would uh, he would write his section finish very quickly and then um, I would still be kind of slowly thoughtfully meanderingly poking away at my section whichever one it was but then as we kind of rounded off the first act uh, we started changing the pace of our respective writing Max slowed down and I sped up. And then we were just finishing at exactly the same time. And the the curious thing about this is that like our sections are very rarely equal in length. You know, like it, we, we'd kind of have a sense of the story beats in any given section, whether it was the letter section or whether it was the re- reception section. But nevertheless, we would like gotten to this groove, this like this cadence and this rhythm of just finishing at exactly the same time, looking up, being a little surprised, swapping laptops reading what we'd just written, going, wow, this is amazing, and then swapping them back in order to continue. So 
there was a lot of surprise and discovery in tandem, but there was also this kind of glorious choreography as we got going, that there was this kind of falling together into this, you know, to be very nerdy, because why not? It's <laughs> a very drift compatible space where you start kind of just anticipating each other. And that lack of discussion would sometimes manifest in really surprising ways where we would say, okay, let's set a letter in Atlantis. And then both of the characters without really discussing it would have the same opinion of Atlantis that we, like, that Max and I had not discussed. <laughs> and it would just kind of, and it was just like this beautiful magic um, of, of the, the way that working together started just blending into this, uh, um, into this shared experience. And they hated Atlantis just for the ride. I don't think that destroyed or ruins anything, but they both just thought it was dumb. Spoilers. Yeah. They're both quite down on Atlantis, for sure. Well, how much did you edit each other's work? And, And was that hard? I mean, did you ever absolutely hate what the other person wrote and found it hard to be honest or did that just never happen because well you love each other's work yeah (laughs) i don't think it ever happened to me yeah in fact if anything there was this kind of wonderful uh positive feedback loop that was generated by the fact that we were both extremely into each other's work so um so you, you we had the simultaneous joy of getting to share our work immediately and have an immediate honest genuine response that was wow this is amazing and uh, so like the the gratification of getting that immediately but also the gratification of as a reader getting to delight in something very genuinely and honestly and and want more of it like the thing that it kept that that it reminded me of um except better (laughs) in a way like less um i mean i guess I don't know the words I'm reaching for. The thing that it reminded me of was role-playing, like a, a, like a role-playing games, like test, text-based RPGs that I used to play in the 90s where uh, the, like, we, I never, when I was a kid, I, I didn't really have a an actual in-person group, but I used to play Vampire the Masquerade and Changing the Dreaming and, and Mage the Awakening on the internet in these online chat rooms, basically, that had different channels for different locations in the game. And it felt like that, except that the difference was in those situations, on some level, everyone is playing their own character and sort of seeking a specific kind of gratification of their own game desires with that, right? Whereas what we were doing was building something very mutual together that was more deliberate than just the kind of pleasure you get in successfully playing a game right like it it felt like we were building something a little bit more um rooted to totally use a blue side metaphor um (laughs) for but yeah it's a good metaphor though no i i agree i mean in that sense it felt a little bit more to me like good tabletop feels good tabletop role-playing feels um my i've never done a great deal of forum RP, uh, though I've been involved in sort of large-scale forum co-writing projects, for lack of a better term. But my experience of forum RP was often that your character is sort of your artistic vision for what you want to happen, and you have some sense of what you want to see go on around them, or what you want them to do, or what sort of situations you want them to end up in. Whereas in my experience of tabletop anyway, there's some of that. There's some sense of uh, I will be satisfied if my character does X. Mm -hmm. But really, 
you'll be satisfied if everyone at the table is having a good time and some really right. amazing things happen. Like, right. even if your character is fundamentally not the focus of tonight's session, if tonight's session ends with, you know, one of your party members making a tearful confession of love to your group's worst enemy and then being, I don't know, kidnapped or something, then mm -hmm. everyone's going to feel like, the session's been great and you'll be on tenterhooks. So like at yeah. a good tabletop session, everyone's playing in and everyone's supporting the drama and pathos and stakes of the story. And you end up feeling like you just love all these characters. And that's what working on this felt like more to me, only you could actually turn around and show other people the yeah. thing that you've done that's so, it just seems to glow with inner light, I don't know. Yeah, the other thing that you've compared it to that I, I'm reminded of here is of like uh, jamming with yes. instruments, with music and yeah. uh, that kind of thing where, yeah, each one is playing their own instrument. But what you're looking to get out of it isn't playing your own instrument. It's playing with someone else. It's making something together and between you that would not exist alone and that you have kind of that, that you're discovering as you're creating it. I think that's yeah. the thing, like the, the joy of it was so much. Like, we had a, a loose act structure that we wanted to follow and, and kind of, you know, big macro story beats we wanted to hit. But there was so much delight in just being surprised by the content of a letter. Like there was so much that was just, yes. and especially picking up on things in past letters and weaving them into other letters and realizing that we had inadvertently foreshadowed something. <laughs> and, yeah. and like that, that kind of beautiful thing, it really did feel like time travel in a sense. And that like, that we had, you know, I've oh, gone back did... and seeded something. Yeah, and and the revision process was actually like that as well. To actually answer your question, <laughs> like the um, the revision process involved us handing it to Dong Wan, our agent, uh, first, and for his notes being, can you make the beginning more like what it ended up being? You know, so essentially go back in time in your own manuscript and seed the things that you need for more clarity, for more uh, just for more of where we ended up in the past. Um, and then when we did that, we were also, we were both editing in our own sections. And once we sold it to Nava Wolf at, uh, at Saga Press, then she basically just had the same kind of notes. I said like that, but more. So we ended up just kind of doing another pass with that. And I think literally the only things that we revised in each other's sections were typos and occasionally picking up on like a slight discrepancy like oh i was referring to this character with these pronouns here maybe we could make that tie up yeah i mean i've compared writing before writing without an outline to sort of like playing time travel jazz <laughs> where you're improvising within a structure but then since you're a time traveler you also have the freedom to go back and make the weird comment or reference that you later on realize that you should have done, should have made to set up what you're going to do later, you get the opportunity to do that in edits and revisions. And certainly here we were having conversations with one another about what might happen next or what the content of a, a scene in which a letter is received might be. But 
we it was much more like the conversation you have with a musician with another musician when you're jamming around in a band like oh what if you did something like this here or what if you played that lick but like an octave up or or yeah. or a transition in there and you're not gonna like grab the guitarist's guitar and start playing it for them and probably the guitarist is going to hear what you have to say and go off in their own direction with it but sometimes you'll give these suggestions and then the challenge is what's the other instrumentalist what's the other musician going to do what's their vision what's their ear tell them you're making such beautiful observations about the writing process and it makes me think how different writing is when you're doing it with someone everyone talks about writing as such a solitary profession and yet you were literally witnessing each other i mean literally across yeah. from each other which i think probably gives you these insights or a new perspective on the writing process i imagine cuz you're seeing each other actually do it it yeah. certainly gave me a new perspective on my own process same yeah tell me about that did you learn something new about about yourself or about writing through through this collaboration I feel like I have learned a lot from Max uh, that I like have that I, I want to kind of build more into a, into my general practice of writing. In that I used to be very suspicious of word count. You know, uh, I used to think that uh, like there there was writing for word count was something that like one kind of writer did and that I was a different kind of writer and that just didn't work for me and I'd always like felt a sort of mixture of of envy and awe for people who do NaNoWriMo and stuff like that where word count is the thing that you're trying to achieve and anything else about the process like the idea of overwriting in order to achieve uh, a word count goal always felt um, just inaccessible to me just not something that I, I could do uh, at speed and working with Max not just on this actually but on um, <laughs> the, the previous uh, the, the previous thing that we'd worked on together which was I, I wrote an episode for Book Burners which is the the serial that Max show runs for Serial Box um, which is like you know paranormal Vatican shenanigans uh, and it's, it's tremendous fun and I super love it the thing that I like he told me that like you doesn't you can have a pace that is not someone else's pace it's just really important to figure out what your pace is so that you can plot your time effectively uh and that was something that i just like especially because i you know came out of a background of writing a lot of short fiction just whenever i felt like it and sending it out to magazines whenever i had it and stuff like that um sort of bumping up against the reality that when you want to work with deadlines writing cannot be quite so numinous and unknowable thing as it was before. Uh, and it's very, very handy to be able to just figure out what your hourly word count writing pace is comfortably for you so that you can then do more of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, or or in, in, in defense of myself is not, not a complete, uh, you know, just get the words out kind of guy. <laughs> no. um, I, I think of it, it's a little more like uh, church, like Wait, ideally, <laughs> ideally, you know, you go into your religious space of preference and you are there for something numinous to happen. Yeah. And there are structures in place to help 
the numinous thing happen, whether it's the appreciation of your local community or union with God or the receipt of communion or a shared experience of prayer or a shared experience of magic, whatever it is. And the ceremony supports that and the schedule makes sure that it happens <laughs> regularly. Right. And okay, no, that's actually a perfect metaphor. <laughs> with it, yeah. But see, I knew where I was going. I knew. I, trust, I know. I trusted. Uh -huh, I was just uh -huh. surprised. <laughs> I, heard, I heard the trust. Your voice was redolent with trust there. <laughs> I, I totally always trust. I just, shock, I, shock, and trust. <laughs> <laughs> well, but just in that way, right? That it, you can't. It must be on some level a numinous and divine. You know, it's a uh, maybe user kind of risky word process you must be beyond yourself when you're doing the real work but there's nothing incompatible with the numinous and a schedule mm -hmm. and if you're you know if you're a monk and if you're a, i don't know a benedictine monk and you are keeping the hours then every i don't know three three and a half hours you are going to a religious service you are you're practicing you're giving mass, you're uh, singing in the choir, you're, but you're, you, the whole thing is part of the practice. Mm -hmm. The question is how to build a structure that will allow you to safely and comfortably be a channel for whatever it is you need to channel. That's totally true. But the I think, and to continue to extend the church metaphor, sure. um, there's turning up to church and uh, you know being in the space, but not being, but being distractible, mm. you know, yeah, being, right, right. Uh, being not entirely attentive to the process that is happening for whatever Looking reason. People's hats and everything. Yeah, people have yeah. great hats and, and, all, and all that sort of thing. And I think that the, the thing that I gained from working in your company and in your presence because that was also, you know, going on a little bit with with book burners, uh, was that I I felt myself being present and attentive in a way that was more difficult for me to achieve on my own when there were always, you know, I, I speaking of hats, I wear a lot of them, mm -hmm. and uh, there are um, always these very competing demands on different kinds of attention to give different projects. But but whenever I would sit with you, whether it was across from each other in the gazebo or whether it was across a table in a coffee shop, uh, whether it was in Ottawa or Boston or Columbus <laughs> or any of the places that we have written together, having you there always made me feel like I was sort of, you know, squaring my shoulders and drawing myself up. And it was like, I am writing now with Max and I'm going to like learn from the way that Max does and stuff. And, uh, and part of that learning was like the kind of focus that you achieve in order to, you know, pour out two to 3000 words uh, in a, in a session and stuff is, is a very specific focus. And it's a, it's a skill that you possess that I had not thought to cultivate before in the same way. And so that's something I felt like I was learning from you. This is, I, I've forgotten now if there was a question <laughs> at the beginning of this, <laughs> but uh, it might have been about. Uh, I forget now. I think it was about. Uh, <laughs> we'll go back in time to listen to the thing that we said via the means of recording. <laughs> but... Clearly, that's impossible. <laughs> Rather than even try to go, 
Oh, there goes some lightning. I don't know if you guys wow. heard that. Yeah, that was quite a, a bolt. That means it's it's time to move on. That's what that means. <laughs> God is uh, making her presence felt in this. Yeah. Uh, yes. In this. Get on with the interview. <laughs> in this church podcast, yeah. church. I think of the two of you writing to each other and with each other, a bit like Red and Blue, but there's one major distinction, which is that they, at least in the beginning, are sworn enemies <laughs> who, for most of their histories, actually never meet face-to-face. -face. Or maybe they do sometimes, but it's oblique and they may be in disguise. That's part of the intricacy of the plot. But in general, they're not at the same place at the same time across multiple universes and times. And yet, they start out as enemies, and then they fall in love. So what draws them to each other? <laughs> what a great question, Max, which we totally were not just discussing in a completely different context. <laughs> um, do you want to field this one? Well, I can start. Um, yeah. So... Red is from a highly connected, highly abstracted, post-singularity technological future. I see most of the people in Red's future universe spending a, a huge chunk of their time in Matrix-style simulation pods and being really happy about it. Um, anything can be provided. There's no cost. Um, and... Red is desperate to go beyond the circle of firelight. She's hungry for something more than what's known. Uh, she wants to push herself further than the envelope of safety. And that's one of the things that draws her to the time war in the first place, to being an operative for the agency, her side's sort of... Uh, temporal skullduggery and secret operations directive. And she's sort of trying to crash beyond the limits of herself. And in Blue, she finds not just someone who takes the world as seriously as she does, someone who has the same depth of desire and focus and devotion to her chosen art which is you know time war basically <laughs> um, but also someone who throws her beyond her own limits throws her into this dark terrifying but also um, intriguing almost seductive space she moves beyond her own mastery into uh, something that's a little bit bigger and, and weirder and starts really trying to go beyond herself and understand who this other person that's come into her life really is and what she means to her. And from, from Blue's perspective, um, I think from both of their perspectives, there is a sense of alienation and insufficiency in the world that they come from. Yes. Uh, so that Blue is someone who feels this 
constant, gnawing, insatiable hunger uh, that nothing in her world seems able to sate, which is part of what makes her a good operative for Garden, the, you know, giant hive mind, organic, embedded consciousness in all organic life future that she comes from. So the way that Blue approaches it is that she, there that world which she's ostensibly fighting for is sort of the means of her continuing to push herself and and try to escape and outperform this just desire for for satiety which she can't ever get until she starts being surprised uh by red by like this agent on the other side who makes things hard for her when she hasn't had that before and i think that in that friction there is this uh, generation of like heat and interest and like oh this is actually something that comes closer than anything else to giving me some kind of satisfaction um and like the the desire to kind of it starts out in desire to defeat and outperform and show off to and be seen by and then it becomes deeper than that and becomes more eh, i always want to stop here because it does it's not really that this is a book that is that that is easy to spoil. It's just that I think a lot of I feel like describing the thing that we want is um, a little bit of thwart experiencing it. I wouldn't want to like describe an intention of experiencing it when I, I find like the experience of it is so much the fun. But but that is basically the thing that uh, um, they're both the best at what they do, and what they do is not very nice, and uh, they. Uh, but also the things that make them the best at what they do are the reasons they are alienated from their respective futures and have more in common with each other than with their commanders and with their futures and stuff like that. I've heard writers say that they'll leave the interpretation of their works to scholars or students, but I'm wondering if it's different when you have a writing partner, because the ideas aren't just in your head, you're sometimes at least bouncing them off each other. So it made me wonder, when you were writing, did you get into the deeper meaning behind the story? In other words, did you talk about the symbolism or metaphorical aspects? Or did you focus more on craft, plot, language, character, that sort of thing? I think we absolutely talked about some of the meaning that we wanted to put in the text. If we had a sort of notion of the direction that we wanted to move and a few of the things we wanted to say about friendship and about possibility and about politics. And starting from there, we built the work. We dove in and wrote um, with a very, very minimal outline, um, more like an act structure than anything else. And at least what I often hear when I hear people talk about leave the meaning up to the scholars or whatever is that there's a certain subconscious level of uh, engagement or of, of work in art. You have the images that are chosen, the specific words, the way those words play with the broader context in which the story is received, the way they fit with the broader body of the writer's own work. And much of that is beyond our conscious control. That'll be in the reader. That will be in 
the whatever effort that someone later on makes to contextualize it. But that doesn't mean that there's not intent going in. Yeah, I think that we a couple of things that we discussed were ways to make the opposition between these two different futures not easily mappable onto any like any pair of political oppositions in our present moment. Yes. Um, we um, because, you know, I, for Americans, I think red and blue uh, can carry very specific meanings. <laughs> which hilariously are, are the opposite meanings that they would carry in Canada and Britain uh, and uh, some of the more extended Commonwealth, just in terms of like, you know, literal political parties. Um, we were we were talking about red and blue. Like we chose red and blue specifically um, as the opposite ends of the light spectrum. That I think that's what we had going into yeah. it uh and that's my uh, memory too yeah yeah red shifts um, and blue shifts exactly because you explained them to me <laughs> i was really delighted by that i'd always been like i know this is a thing that happens in physics but i never learned what it was and then you know you very generously uh like explained over text with like hand-drawn charts and graphs and stuff and that was delightful <laughs> so we were thinking about the opposite ends of spectrums of light and the different ways that you can kind of have equal and opposite but not sort of overburdened with uh, with the with contemporary significance. So a thing that I really like about the way the um, the novella goes is that you get the sense that that red and blue have actually quite similar moral outlooks and trajectories, but they're sort of beside the point because of the nature of the time war. Like the time war is being fought between an opposition of abstracted consciousness and embedded consciousness, uh, which, you know, for the purposes of discussing it in genre, we can talk about it as post-singularity tech and, um, and, and sort of sentient organic matter that is all connected to itself, you know? Um, but it's not like one of them is uh, a, it's not like one of them is pro climate change and one of them is anti it, you know? Um, it's they, in, we, we wanted to talk about something that was different than that, that was different than my, like a granular approach to contemporary issues. What we really wanted to talk about was intimacy and vulnerability and the ways in which friendship and love can develop under duress. And I mean, and time travel and the experience of the experience of what it is like to kind of build a friend out of words and yes. stuff like that. There's a beat where um, in the context of all this grand uh, fear and post-human war, red and blue are at one point talking about the desire for just having neighboring houses, you know, yeah. something as simple as uh, just trying to live life. And dogs mm -hmm. to walk too, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. I, you know, it reminds me a lot of um, the uh, a line at the end of Into the Woods, right? Uh, Can't we just pursue our wives with our children and our wives till that happy day arrives? The the desperate desire for something like normalcy, for just being able to work out the concerns of our life. But here we are, caught in this apocalyptic struggle between different extremes of history as mm -hmm. you know frankly almost everyone in human yeah. history has been 
right? Exactly. There's the desperate yearning for something like peace mm -hmm. and the grand tidal forces of history pulling us into the, this black hole or that other one. Well, even though they don't line up red and blue and the agency and the garden line up to contemporary political sides, I just saw a conversation of yours that you had together about the book on the bookish website where you connected the themes in the book to our current political situation in the sense that people are trying to not exactly rewrite history, but it's sort of like a war over the truth and what is truth. And blue and red can literally shape truth by changing the timeline and actually change history. But I guess us little humans in um, the world today just do our spin and do our accusations of fake news and just label things the way we want to label them as bad or good. But you were drawing a parallel to that. At least there's a feeling that there's something similar about that. I'd wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, even beyond the notion of aggressive lying and propaganda in the current, especially American media sphere, you have the fact that history is a story, right? Mm -hmm. That um, any narrative you create over the top of what happened is going to have its own natural emphasis, its own point, its own rhythm. And because this, I think, is one of the ways that humans work, its own moral. And the question is, what is that moral? What is the point? What is the shape that you are trying to create to history? There is no neutral history, I think. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think I do believe that. And so then we ask ourselves, who historically has been left out? of history who has not been the point who has been the point and why have they been the point what moral does our the sort of received notion of say american history have who does that moral serve who was in control when that moral was being crafted and what did they want to accomplish by it that those are the kinds of things that at least i mean when i talk about us being constantly in a kind of time war. Yeah, no, totally agreed. I also, uh, you know, that we were writing this in 2016. Like we were writing this in, was it June? It was, it was late June of 2016. Brexit literally, like the Brexit referendum took place during the writing retreat that we were, you know, drafting the first three acts of this book in. Um, and it was already the half point of the year, you know, that we were, we were extremely saturated with uh, the, like, from my perspective as a Canadian, like looking at American news media, and this is by no means to like, you know, say that ours is particularly great shakes or anything. It's just that the, the American media landscape uh, is, is a very specific thing. And my perspective of what it was doing to my friends was that it was an actually actively abusive situation Absolutely. that like you you it was a sick system from which no one could escape everyone was saturated by the you know horse race that they were that they quite successfully manufactured you know uh, out of 
nonsense. Like <laughs> I keep I keep on thinking, God, I keep thinking of a single tweet which uh, still feels truly truly accurate, which is the what was it the um, the new iPhone has no phone jack, but the Galaxy literally explodes. <laughs> was I think the comparison yeah. being used, <laughs> you know, uh, yep. to to try and compare Hillary Clinton to Donald Trump. Um, and yet, like, nevertheless, the people kept trying to make them equivalent and like, you know, and to make them equal but opposite in ways that were that re- required such a rewriting of reality that um, like the, the Matrix would have had to collapse under that sort of stress. Um, so we, like a thing that I've observed is that um, there are a truly astonishing number of time travel stories coming out this year that were all being written in 2016. And all of the ones that I'm aware of that are time travel stories feature and foreground queer women specifically. There's, uh, I mean, I'm just gonna rattle them off because like the the, the picture they paint all together is, is really startling. They are all extremely different books. There's Cameron Hurley's The Light Brigade, there's Kate Mascarenhas' The Psychology of Time Travel. There's Kelly Robson's God's Monsters and the Lucky Peach. There's Kate Hartfield's uh, Alice Payne Arrives and Alice Payne Rides. There's our book. Um, and in September, there's Annalie Newitz's The Future of Another Timeline. And what like they all have in common is a, a sort of like corrective approach to or an attempt at having a corrective approach of a sort of restorative justice approach uh to looking at history um and they are foregrounding queer women uh people who have very very consistently been written out of history without access to time machines so that that sort of thing i think like that resonance is something that you can't really get away from when you're writing a time travel story but crucially what all of these books also have in common is that there's no homophobia homophobia in any of them there is a there's a, a focus on like just the there's an an affirmation of competence and life and character and queerness all existing at the same time, not in tension with each other, not uh, you know in an exceptional kind of way. They're just queer and living their lives, uh, and I think that that is in and of itself very important as well. Even as we give them you know this vast power to go back and rewrite history uh, for better or for worse. Well, Annalie is going to be on the show. She's scheduled to come on in September, and maybe I should invite some of the other authors on as well. Yeah, I think it's a really great conversation to be had about this, genuinely. I I talked to Annalie uh, about uh, a a little bit, uh, because I was writing an article about this topic for for The Guardian, which I'm not sure, temporarily speaking, where I am relative to that appearing, but... um, but yeah, like so I, I asked her about it. I asked her specifically, like, where it, were you writing it at that time and, and various things. And uh, yeah, I think that there are really fantastic conversations to be had about it. I'm only a tiny part of the way into that book and love it so much, so hard so far. Um, and uh, can't wait to hear what she says about it. Well, we've gone longer than I usually do for interviews, but I guess that's because I have two guests. And yeah. Two yeah. wonderful articulate guests who've written a wonderful <laughs> book. So well, I don't know about the articulate <laughs> bit for myself, but uh... well, thank you so much, uh, both of you, for coming on the podcast. It's really been it's been great having you both on the show. 
Thank you so much. Thank you so much, me. Rob. Yeah. It's been delight. I've been talking to Amal El Motar and Max Gladstone about their novella, This Is How You Lose the Time War, which came out two weeks ago from Saga Press. This is New Books in Science Fiction. Please subscribe to the show if you don't already, and consider leaving a review. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. The editor-in-chief and founder of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe, and the editor is Leanne Wilson. I'm Rob Wolf. I'm the author of The Alternate Universe. I'm at robwolf.net and on Twitter at robwolfbooks. Thanks for dropping by.